Let's say you have a set of microservices running on a Kubernetes cluster. In the past, developers used to program features like service discovery, observability, who's allowed to talk to whom, and other security-related features directly into the application code. This slowed down the dev cycle, and it made these microservices bigger, and just generally made everything less flexible. The service mesh is a tool responsible for handling service-to-service -service communication. You keep your application small and business-focused, and instead, you dynamically program the intelligence into the network. Istio enables you to incorporate application-aware traffic management, exceptional observability, and strong security features into your network by deploying a sidecar proxy with every application. The Istio Ambient Mesh is an alternative to the standard Istio architecture. It allows you to not have to run sidecars per application. The company Solo.io was founded by Edith Levine a few years ago. Interestingly, the name Solo comes from her being the Solo founder when she started the company, and the IO domain name was a cool thing to have back then. Brian Gracely is the head of marketing at Solo.io and he joins us today. This episode is hosted by Jordimon Companies. Check out the show notes to follow him on Twitter. Hi, Brian. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, Jordy. Great to be with you. So Brian Gracely is an industry veteran that has worked at a few relevant companies already, like Red Hat, where he did mostly product product strategy, uh, Wikibon from the Cube Media Group, where he was an analyst consultant, EMC, Cisco, NetApp, and the list goes on. He's now at Solo.io, the company founded by Edith Levine uh, that provides mostly security networking technology, but maybe, maybe more. He's also the founder and host of a competitor of this very podcast you are listening to, the name of which I dare not mention, but that you may find in the show notes and maybe, just maybe, consider subscribing. Um, this is the fourth, maybe fifth time that uh, Brian is in the Software Engineering Daily podcast, and he's, he also does all-night round barbecue cooking for charity, uh, and I'm sure that many other things. Um, well, as I said, uh, he now works for Solo.io, the company founded by Edith Levine a few years back. If you're interested in Edith's journey and Solo's journey, you can listen to two interviews that Jeff did in the past with Edith in 2016 and 2018. I'll also include those in the show notes. So precisely, Brian, in that in one of those interviews, Edith uh, uh, talked about unikernels. Were you around during the hype of unikernels and maybe the demise and the sunset of those? Yeah, so um, I guess to put a little bit into context, so... When when Docker was sort of taking off, so you know, put it put it if you put it into context. So we had started off with with bare metal machines, yeah. and then we had virtual machines. So I was slicing a, a server into pieces, and then containers came along with Docker. And you know, as as naturally happens in our industry, people went, well, a what's next? And then and then you also had things like serverless happening at the time, which seemed like a smaller piece of compute. And so people said, well, you know, what what could be even smaller? And so there was a there was a little blip in the in the big technology history thing that was called unikernels, and it was literally um, and there's a little bit of, of sort of foreshadowing. It I don't want to say it became eBPF because it didn't, but it was oh. a it was a if I could build a little little tiny bit of code and just run it in the kernel, you know, without any other things, 
you know, that's the, like the smallest piece of computing you could have. And people were trying to come up with use cases. And they said, well, maybe for like edge computing for like a little tiny device. Um, and and I, I suspect the reason that, that Jeff was talking to Adit at the time was she, uh, and I knew her when she was at EMC. She mm. was in the, the office of CTO at EMC. And she I was, was at DMC at that point. Right. Yes. Um, <clears throat> and so I, that's where I first met her. And she says, yeah, I'm working on this little project and it's called Unique and it was for Unikernels. Um, and that was actually, I think, the very first, it wasn't the reason Solo was started, but it, when she first started Solo, she'd actually been working on about three or four different open source projects, and that was one of them. That repository is still out in the Solo GitHub repository <laughs> if anybody ever wanted to go look at it. But it never really panned out because it was like, A, working in the kernel is really hard, and B, people were like, I don't know that I need something that small. Like, yeah. I don't have a use case for it. And so it just kind of faded away. Um, it got a little bit of buzz because the hottest company at the time, Docker, bought a company that was doing unikernels. And so people went, ooh, Docker's seeing the future, and maybe containers aren't really where it's going to be. It's going to be unikernels. And so there was a little bit of buzz for you know one KubeCon lifecycle, six months or something of like, <laughs> hey, unikernels are a thing. We measure the years in KubeCon lifecycles. I, I like it. I, I actually also interviewed Sam Alba, one of the... If not the founders, one of the first employees, I think he's a founder of Docker, uh, yep. if not anymore. Docker, he's actually, I interviewed him because he's the founder of Dagger.io. Check that episode out. Mm -hmm. But um, he actually didn't mention this acquisition, but it's funny. But yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, I'm no expert and I can I was not around at the time. My focus was not um, on unicorns, but yeah, it feels that it, it's a very thin slice of the complete stack. So therefore, you need deep knowledge, especially of the bottom layers of the stack, which are always complicated. And it's actually one of the problems that I've um, uh, surfaced when I've interviewed people about eBPF, right? And it's very yeah. powerful. I mean, everyone sees the benefits. And every, everyone sees the shortcomings that you need to program in C, most likely, right. and deep knowledge of C and so forth. Right. Even though the code is actually not committed to the to the kernel or to any of the unit. Um, Linux modules still requires the same kind of right, permissions and yeah, yeah, it runs sort of in a sandbox, but it, it looks like it's in the kernel, right? Okay, so regardless of what happened to Unikernels, uh, rest in peace, Unikernels, <laughs> uh, it seems that Kubernetes uh, is the default stack uh, the, the choice for, you know, for application orchestration, right? Yep. Uh, OpenStack, open which we were talking before the show, we recorded the show, another seems to be falling behind, if not completely, right? Right. Um, I'm saying this, by the way, with, with full respect to the maintainers and contributors of any of, of OpenStack or any other uh, uh, project that has competed against Kubernetes for, for adoption and so forth. Uh, in fact, let me quote uh, the Stack Overflow Insights report from this very year. Docker, quote, Docker and Kubernetes are in the first and second place as the most loved and wanted tools, end quote. So adoptions in numbers in that, in that same report of previous years has only grown. Um, so what are your thoughts on Kubernetes? Has it, is it going to become the Linux, the Git in terms of adoption, uh, of the application delivery layer? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, for, for people that want to build applications that run in containers, package them with containers, containers has all sorts of, you know, valuable kind of capabilities around it. You know, for, for people that are going to use containers to, to package and deploy their applications, Kubernetes is... It has won, is going to continue to win. It's, you know, the, those sort of wars, you know, whether it was Docker Swarm or Mesosphere or, uh, you know, homegrown stuff and also Kubernetes, 
Kubernetes is, is sort of far surpassed that. And we could, we could always go into detail sort of why. Um, but I, I think, yeah, for this community, especially here at KubeCon, for the people that, you know, containers are the thing that you're going you're gonna to use to represent an application, Kubernetes is, is the foundation of it. It's become very mature. So, I mean, that project, you know, we're now 22, 23 releases into it. Um, it's slowing down feature velocity. It's more focused on stability, less releases per year, three instead of four. Mm. Um, so, you know, the, you, it's sort of a weird thing in our industry because we always feel like if something is, is winning or it's the default, like you'd think everybody's talking about it all the time. Um, that was the case here at this event for a long time. And it, it has been for Kubernetes. It's, it's really sort of become, it's just there we're talking about all the ancillary things around it. So like, oh, Kubernetes is great. Once you figure out Kubernetes, what I'll call like the, you know, the, the 1.0 stage of Kubernetes, yeah. like lots of people have deployed it. Lots of people have found, have found some amount of success with it. So their, their company goes, oh, we're, you know, we're deploying more, more frequently or we're able to scale differently or we're able to run across multiple clouds. And those are all good things. And then we're now sort of seeing what I'll call like the 2.0 version of it, which is like, oh, well, I, I now have you know multiple clusters to deal with. How do I do that? Or I now have multiple teams deploying into this. How do I manage security? And so there's sort of a second order set of challenges that come along, which is good, right? Like I'm doing things better. Um, and that's kind of what this show has become is all the other things that could be built on Kubernetes. And it, it kind of proves out the kind of the original, you know, one of the original statements that used to float, float around a lot for Kubernetes once it started to kind of get adopted, which was, you know, Kubernetes was never developed for developers, you know, even though we're at an event called Cloud Native yeah. and, and all this sort of stuff, you know, it was always intended to be sort of infrastructure level, platform level. And, and, you know, you heard a lot of people say, like, it's a platform for building platforms, right? We're now at the stage where it's like, okay, what are the things you can build on top of stable Kubernetes? Whereas before it was like, I just need to figure out how Kubernetes works. Uh, but it's, to answer your original question, yeah, it's definitely won the you know, container orchestration yeah. wars. I think quoting the same report that I just mentioned, Stack Overflow, I like to, I like to quote that report because the, um, the, they survey 80,000 developers. And yeah. I think it's a considerable uh, figure, right? right. Uh, right. So a, a, probably the biggest representation of reality. I'm not sure. Maybe other people know other reports. Yeah, it's great. It's a, it's a really yeah. good broad benchmark. Adoption yeah. of Kubernetes is around 30%, right? So for example, the same report actually stopped ask, asking for a couple of years about what version control system the, the respondents actually used because uh, Git just trended to 100. It remains, right. I think, in a 98%. They've, they've, the, the question has returned in 2021. And again, the, the, the answers are around the 98%. Uh, so yeah. I guess I guess if there if, if if Kubernetes has won that battle in a way, uh, then the alternative is something different. It's, it might not be container based, right? So people well, are. I think I think the way to think of it is so it's a little bit of a weird question to ask developers, right? Do you do you use Kubernetes, right? Yeah. Because to a certain extent, if if they know they're using Kubernetes, they're still probably at a fairly early stage. Like they're like, oh, I'm having to deal with YAML and I don't like all this stuff, but they're aware of it, right? Um, the, the second way to interpret the question is like, if the, the company that has deployed Kubernetes, like a platform engineering team, for example, they may have done, you know, sort of done their job, done a good job, and the developer has no idea what's being used. They're like, look, I write code, I push code, it just goes into production, and it might go into production on Kubernetes. If that's the case, they probably don't know they use Kubernetes, but it does, right? So there's a certain amount of like, well, is that factored into the question? And the other part is, 
you know, Kubernetes for, you know, for all of its success and, and all the, you know, marketing and bluster and all this sort of stuff, like the other ways of deploying stuff to con compute haven't gone away. So there's still lots of people who deploy their code and it just happens to run in a VM, right? It's just a, you know, an operating system in a VM. There are people who are doing serverless. Serverless continues to grow. And all these things are just, they're kind of, uh, I don't know what's the right word, but they're, they're sort of endemic of, you know, compute keeps growing mm. and we keep, we keep having tools that allow you to go, oh, if I, want, if I don't want to do compute in the big way, I can do it in the medium-sized way or the, the smaller way. And they're all perfectly valid. Um, and as a developer, you may or may not even know that you're doing that. You're just like, look, I wrote some Java code and pushed it. You know, it, it executes. Isn't that the promise of probably many other technologies, but Cloud Foundry, right? We'll see a push and Paz is a Paz is a way of doing. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, Cloud Foundry, Heroku, a bunch of those. Yeah, that's another one of those. Like, I don't really want to care about how it runs. I just want to write code. So Solar provides several products. One of which is a service mesh, right? Yep. What are services? Uh, can you give us a one-on-one of what a service mesh is? Yep. And how do they fit into everyday use of Kubernetes? Whether you are in Kubernetes 1.0, this scenario that you briefly described, if right. you want to go into more details about the problems right. that Kubernetes 1.0 people find. Right. And, uh, and yeah, we'll then move on to how service meshes work in a more advanced uh, uh, right. Kubernetes, uh, a more mature Kubernetes adoption. Yeah, so so we are so solo.io is a uh, we're a company in terms of like products we make we do service mesh and we do API gateway but in the sense of service mesh so what we focus on is the the Istio project uh, within the CNCF for service mesh there's still a few different variations of of service meshes that are out there so there's oh, yeah. Linkerd and, and Istio and some others so we focus on on Istio a lot of our team develops code or you know contributes to Istio um, so the way I explain service mesh to people is if you have a, in the simplest terms, if I had a monolithic application, that big piece of code with a bunch of different functionalities in it used to run on one server, right? And yes, it could run on multiple servers, but let's just keep it simple. Hmm. It runs on one server. At, at the point in time in which you say, I want to break up that monolith in some way, shape, or form into microservices. So I want to break out authentication or I want to break out the database or whatever it is. At the point that you do that, you essentially move those, those functions, those services across the network, right? So they now run on separate boxes, yeah. right? And you do that for, for good reasons because you, you, know, you want to have some flexibility of what that is or you want to have you know, one thing not be dependent on the whole thing if, yeah. in terms of velocity and so forth. But in, when it was a monolith, so for example, let's say, let's say that monolith had like 10 components to it, right? I didn't have to think about, that monolith didn't have to think about like, hey, component A wants to talk to component B. Where is component B? Because mm -hmm. they just knew. They were you know, kind of statically put in, how, you know, it's a port, it's a name or whatever. Um, if, for example, there was a, an aspect of the monolith that was allowed to talk to the database, but maybe only one direction, but some other aspect wasn't allowed to talk to the database, like that was all logic that was mm -hmm. built into the application. Once you move things across, once you split them up and put them across the network, you have to figure out one of two things. Do I build the logic that now says, like, how do I do service discovery? Where are these things mm. across the network? Which is, you know, it's like a, you know, it's a protocol that you have to figure out. You know, A, how do I, how do I disturb, uh, discover services? B, who's allowed to talk to who? And is it directional? C, uh, things like, you know, is there rate limiting that needs to be involved? So, for example, if we're talking to the database 
and there's this random service that's talking to it, that thing better not be sending me 10,000 requests mm. a second because that might be a denial of service attack. Um, maybe there's an aspect of it that says, um, now that I broke out this front end service, it needs to be load balanced. Do I want to build a load balancer into my code or do I want to use yeah. an external thing? So what a service mesh okay. in, in essence does is it says, all that logic you used to have for finding, securing, routing, um, you know, load balancing in a monolith and you spread it out across the network, yeah. Service Mesh says, if you'd like to just let this external service take care of those things for you, you can do that. Mm. And the reason that's interesting to, it's interesting to infrastructure teams because they go, look, you know, routing, security, load balancing, rate limiting, those feel like network functions or things that should live in the infrastructure or should live sort of in the cloud platform layer. If you're an application developer, you look at that and you go, well, do I want to keep writing business logic or do I want to be doing you know, routing security logic? And some developers are like, I'm perfectly happy to do that. You know, I like to control everything. But a growing number are saying like, that's a lot of extra stuff that I don't have time to do, to maintain, to do. So if I could offload it into something else, that would be interesting. So at the, you know, in, the, in the most basic kind of story, like that's what a service mesh optionally offers. Um, okay. Yep. So I, I always get confused. By the way, I should have asked, what, what and to break a bit uh, in the sequential uh, mm -hmm. order of the questions, the name of the company, where does it come from? Um, so the company calls, it's called Solo. Um, and, and, and Adit tells this story better, but so, um, so Adit uh, is, you know, so, so she's a female founder, which is somewhat unique in our industry, obviously. And she was, you know, she was out looking for, for money. You know, she was talking to, to investors about the company. And she said over and over again, people said, okay, that's an interesting idea. You're very smart. Who's your co-founder? Right. Because they assumed, oh, well, there's some man that's going to run the business. Yes. She's a very technical co-founder. So they thought, well, maybe there's a, 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 there's a man that's involved with the business and B, maybe there's a, you know, experienced CEO or something. And she kept coming back going like, no, no, it's, it's my company. It's my company. It's my company. And you know, when she was first pitching it, it didn't necessarily have a name. It was just this idea. And she got to the point where she just kept telling people, no, it's me solo mm -hmm. doing it, that that became the name. And then at the time, .io was the, you know, was a cool thing yeah. to have for a domain name. So that's kind of where it got started. And she is a very, she's a very determined individual. Um, she's an interesting background. She's she, from Israel, uh, was a professional basketball player at one oh, point in time. Um, was also, you know, part of the Israeli military, you know, kind of you know, mandatory. Yeah. So she comes from, from you know, a very competitive background, very you know, security-oriented background. Um, she's, she's tough. You know, she's, she, doesn't, she doesn't take much from people. Um, but she's also, you know, kind of taught herself to be a technologist. She was good at math and all those sort of things. And so she has a very determined personality that is, I'm going to go do some things. Okay. Um, I'm capable of doing them. And, and yeah, the, the name just sort of, you know, kind of plays up how we got started, I guess. Because the, the word solo, I know it's applied in the English language as solo founder, correct? But mm -hmm. it, 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 it's so, not an English word, right? Uh, I don't Do know. Do you use solo I, for any other? So solo, solo in, at least in the United States, uh, th there's all sorts of th things that you use. Solo is often like individual. Okay. You know, solo, okay. that's probably the most common one. Okay. Um, you know, there's things like Han Solo. People know that. What's uh, that? Han Solo, oh, yeah, Star but, Wars, oh, okay, yeah, the, famous, the famous, the oh, famous character. Oh my god! Apologies for that. Um, 
there's a there's a there's a cup there's a plastic cup that is used in picnics and barbecues it's the company is called solo okay, so okay. yeah we get confused a little bit with some of those things but uh yeah we're, we're the technology company so okay that that's a really interesting story uh i'll check if, you, if she if she played for uh maccabi uh the biggest team in uh, uh israel uh, basketball uh, maybe football too i'm not sure um soccer uh so i should mention that Glue is the name of the family of products, right? Of the underlying. Right. Yeah. So the company is Solo. The, the product family is is Glue. Yes. So you just mentioned the service mesh, so Glue service mesh, mm -hmm. and I must be honest, I usually confuse uh, API gateways with service meshes. So yeah. you've explained the former. Can you give us the latter uh, in comparison sure. with the former? So, is there an overlap, or yeah, are they completely so, different things? Yeah, it's a great question. So let me I'll give you a little bolt. So. Oh. Um, API gateway in the simplest sense is a uh, developer has an API that they want to expose. So let's say I want to expose it to the world. Mm. Um, in theory, you could just say like, hey, here's a DNS name that points to my thing. World, you can see it. Um, typically, that API represents data somewhere. And yeah. so you don't want to just nakedly just, you know, uh, expose it to the world. So you typically put some sort of device. It's a security device that sits in front of, you know, sits sort of at the edge of your network where your users will come in, um, you know, when they want to go to like api.company.com, yeah. it's going to route to that, that gateway. And the gateway does a number of, you know, pretty basic functions. It, it, it will authenticate who you are or that you're allowed to talk to it. Um, it'll uh, authorize what you're trying to do. So oh, I want to talk to this database or yeah. I want to talk to some aspect of it. Um, and then it starts to do kind of some of the things we talked about with service mesh, like I want to rate limit it. You know, am I getting too many requests per second? Um, I may have to load balance it. I'm going to do basic routing of things. Um, and then, you know, you may get into some more sophisticated stuff. So if you want to do data loss prevention or application firewall, right, like a bunch of security things. Um, so that, that's kind of what an API gateway does. They've, they've been in the market for a while. Ours is, is sort of unique in that we, from a technology perspective, a lot of them were based on older proxy technologies, mm. so Nginx and, and HAProxy. We've always been based on Envoy uh, Proxy, which you know, kind of, kind of came with, you know, sort of like everybody uses Kubernetes because it comes with Google DNA built in. You know, Envoy kind of came with this internet scale DNA because it came from Lyft and they were doing millions of, of rides. Um, so for us, it's been really powerful because if you think about it, um, and this gets in a little more in the weeds, Envoy as a, as a data plane for an API gateway is the same technology that Istio uses for its data plane for its proxies. So, so for us, to, to, to your second part of your question, like, are these things, a service mesh and an API gateway kind of blurring together? Yeah. Yeah, they are to a certain extent. I mean, they're both basically saying, am I, am I protecting or managing an internal API, which is really just how microservices talk to it, mm -hmm. or an external API, okay. you know, sort of an API gateway type of thing. And for us, what we do uniquely um, is our control plane for all the tech, all the tools, you know, Glue Gateway or Glue Mesh are Istio. So Istio is a well-known way of doing control plane. And then Envoy is the data plane. And so the nice thing that that lets companies do if they're using our technologies is they go, hey, I want to write one security filter. I can apply that to an outside policy, an inside policy, and, you know, I don't have to think about them being these two different things. So, so it seems that... Glue has a decoupled control plane, yep. so it can be scaled and secured independently from the proxy data plane. Mm -hmm. So you, you were touching precisely right now about that. Can you can you elaborate a bit more? Because it did get a bit confusing, not because you did a yeah. poor job of explaining it. It can be... Yeah, so, so typically, 
So in, in, in typically, and again, you know, everything, everything is, is, is interesting in having a historical context. So people that, that built API gateways or, or you know, use API gateways, that was typically considered sort of a separate function, right? So, so somebody in infrastructure or security would say, hey, our developers have a bunch of APIs. We need to protect them. We will have this box called an API gateway or a series box. And so let's say you had five API gateways because you had a lot of volume coming in. In order to manage those things, you probably built some either automation or control plane that said, hey, how do I make them all look like one? Okay, right? Because, you, you know, you, you know API.company.com, you want it to look like one, not like API1.company.com or API1.box1 or whatever. So you want to make it look like one. So they would have built a, a control plane, mm -hmm. right? And then when the service mesh world sort of came along, which was, again, mostly internal microservices, but really internal APIs, yes. it had, you know, whether it was Istio's control plane or Linkerd's control plane or whatever, it had a control plane. And so a lot of times people would have, you know, kind of a, think of it as like kind of a, a siloed for API gateway, and then they'd have sort of a silo for, for service mesh. In our case, when we started as a company, Envoy was sort of taking off and Istio was taking off. And we kind of looked at those two things and we said, we're going to be in, we're going to make both of those kind of products, but the overlap in technology is such that we're just going to build them on these sort of common technologies. So we have, we have a common control plane now that says, oh. again, you, you needed a control plane for sort of both of them. Yes. We just said, hey, there's a ton of commonality between these two function, functional areas. Um, if we build them commonly, um, there's a lot of reuse that can happen. People don't have to learn two things. They can learn one. That's, that's kind of, and again, it, it fits because historically when we started, the technologies to do that were available. Yeah. Whereas if you tried to do this eight, 10 years ago, you were probably building them individually. Well, talking about history, does, has your company historically uh, helped sort of like transition to microservices your clients? Or is this not, I mean, I know you're not consultancy, yeah. by the way, but in any way or form has the Glue portfolio helped with that? Yeah, I, I think we, we tend to help companies in, in two ways. So, uh, so API gateways are, are really good, interesting technologies for doing like application modernization because they, exactly. they, can kind of, they can kind of align an API to breaking off a chunk of, of something. So you can still have a, an older application and then sort of build a new API that says, oh, I'm going to carve off that one piece and then I'll carve off another piece. And the API gateway is a good way of kind of going, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of carve that up. Mm. That was a lot of how we first got started. So our, you know, our customers are you know, enterprise companies, um, and they would come to us and they'd say, hey, we, we want to use you because we're doing these modernization projects. They have different scale or they're running on Kubernetes. Um, and then what we do in the service mesh space tends to be people who are, we've been doing things with Kubernetes. We're trying to scale our Kubernetes, multiple clusters, multiple groups, different security policies. So there's, yeah, there's an aspect of it that's kind of modernization, but it's also sort of, you know, next step in their Kubernetes journey, if you will. Yeah, the Kubernetes 2.0 that you explained before, right? In yeah, way. yeah. So EBPF, I think, I don't know if we mentioned it in this conversation or before recording, but it's, uh, it's actually part of your offering, is it not yep. right? Okay. Yeah. It's it, one of the promises of EBPF, that there are many, and it's a very cool project, is to remove the need for sidecars. But uh, in this case, uh, Glue 
has something that was recently announced, correct yep. me if I'm wrong, yep. that also has that promise in it, right? right? What is it and can you explain what it is? Yeah, so I'll talk about the glue thing first, then I'll okay. explain the EVPF thing okay. as well. So, so we, um, so Solo as a company was, we have a lot of customers that run uh, Istio Service Mesh. And Istio Service Mesh, the way it works today is every time you deploy an application or a Kubernetes pod, it will also deploy a, a little tiny proxy along with it. And so that little proxy sits next to the application and it becomes your, your place where a security policy can be applied or if you want to do observability, it's right next to the application. So it's, it's great from an architecture perspective in that you always have a one-to-one -one relationship. The downside of it is it can have a lot of overhead to do one-to-one, -one, right? So we had another, a number of companies who came to us and said, hey, um, you know, we're, we're good with Istio, we like the control plane and so forth. But if there's a way to make it simpler, like that would be great if you guys can start exploring that. So we had started exploring that maybe a year ago. And um, through various conversations, you know, over that last year, we started talking to the folks at Google because we do a lot of things on the Istio open source community steering committee and so forth. And we said, hey, we're, we're independently working on this thing. And some of the folks at Google said, oh, yeah, we're, we're also happen to be independently working on the same oh, idea. We should, we should try and get together on this. And so for the last, say, six months or so, we've both been working on this sort of um, what people will call like sidecarless variation on Istio. And it just got announced back in August. It was called ambient, you know, Istio Ambient Mesh. And it's, a, it's an alternative to the standard Istio architecture. It allows you to not have to run sidecars per application. Mm -hmm. You just run the, the layer four or layer seven proxy at sort of the node level. So... Um, you still get all the same security that you did before. It's just more lightweight. It's a little easier to set up. It's going to cost less in terms of computing. So we're really excited about all that. Um, and, and it's nice because it, it lets you say, okay, if you, if you like SEO, if you like the control plane, the way it does security, you now have some options. If you want the you know, really, really granular security you know, per proxy thing, that might make sense. Um, and there's some use cases where that makes sense. Or if you want the sort of lighter weight, maybe easier to set up and manage, that's available too. You don't have to like relearn a bunch of technologies. Um, so that, that's kind of Istio ambient mesh. Now, to your point about eBPF, so, and I'll, I'll correct you a little bit, um, because again, this is sort of new and just make sure terminology is right. So eBPF is this, you know, uh, extended Berkeley packet filtering. It's a, it's a very low level Linux kernel thing. And a terrible name. It's, yeah, it's easy to mispronounce, <laughs> easy to misspell. Um, but it's, you know, it's old, old Linux, yeah. Linux stuff. Um, <laughs> nothing, nothing in Linux has easy names, you know, Doc and, or whatever. Um, so eBPF, the, the technology is the, the, the thing in the kernel that lets you do this sort of advanced inspection and, and maybe, you know, so I could write packet filters and, mm. and all that kind of stuff. Now, the project that gets a lot of buzz is this thing called Cilium. And so Cilium is a project that says, um, initially it was, we want to build a, uh, a Kubernetes CNI, so Kubernetes networking, that happens to replace IP tables, right, the, the default Linux routing table, with eBPF. Right? So that was the original okay. kind of scope of, of the Cilium project. Right? And that's, that's kind of where everybody heard about eBPF. Now, over the last couple of months, the Cilium project has said, we want to be more than just a, a CNI, we would like to be a service mesh as well, right? So the thought process is, if I have a, a CNI, if, I have, if I'm doing the, 
the layer three sort of networking, I'll just move up the stack and do layer four and layer seven. And the, the thing that's gotten a lot of buzz from people is, is you know, Cilium said, oh, well, the way we're going to do service mesh is it has no sidecars. Therefore, all the flaws of other service meshes that have used sidecars, they all go away. And again, it's a, it's a neat, I'll, I'll say this just for your audience in all fairness. My company does Istio. People sometimes think that the Cilium service mesh and Istio are competitive. That's fine. They're two technology approaches. Okay. There's a lot of service mesh approaches out yeah. there, right? The, the Cilium service mesh sort of claim to fame or their, you know, it's kind of the marketing thing is like service mesh without sidecars. Okay. Now, where this all kind of fits together is if it really boils down to that original topic we talked about was I used to have a monolithic application. It was all in one box. It didn't have to go across the network to find things and do things. As soon as I break up that monolith into things that go across the network, I have to figure out what do I want the network to do, you know, augment you know, the, the network, and what do I want the application to keep doing? And Cilium, the Cilium service mesh, its sort of default thing, the thing that doesn't use sidecars is we would like to do like layer four security. And that's their, their kind of default thing. That's what we do. They can also do layer seven, but at the point they do layer seven, they essentially introduce that proxy, which looks like a side, you know, which is essentially okay. a sidecar. Okay. So it's, it's, it's kind of the classic thing that we do in technology, which is like something seems too complicated or maybe is too complicated. We should sort of simplify it. And more often than not, we don't actually simplify it by like writing some better unique code. We go, I'm just going to not talk about something. I'm just going to say that thing doesn't apply to me anymore. It applies to something else. And maybe this, this lesser thing is, is what you need, right? So if, if all you want for, you know, to, in the Cilium case is, I just want layer four security, which is for some people, like, that's perfectly fine, right? I just want to know that every box, every communication between every box is known and it's secured, you know, it's encrypted. Like, that's perfectly fine. And if you want that, then from a service mesh, you should say, what does it do for layer four encryption? And, you know, in the case of Istio, it does layer four encryption. You can do that. Um, in the case of Cilium, you can do that. In the case of Linkerd, you can do that. Like every service mesh does layer four. And if, and if that's the thing we're comparing, which again, we're just making technology comparison, then every mm -hmm. one these days has a sidecar less option. Yeah. Right. Okay. It's, it's really when you get into doing higher level sort of layer seven security. So, you know, HTTPS, um, like you want to, uh, you know, capture the packets and maybe um, re-authenticate them, you know, or authenticate them at the node level, or you want to do, you know, layer seven sort of load balancing or, you know, things that are at a higher level of the protocol. If you need to inspect it at that level, you need a thing that looks at that at that level. Yeah. Um, and there's no way of getting around that. Like if, if your thing only does layer four and you need layer seven inspection, well then you, you either do it there in the, in the service mesh mm. or, or alternatively, you say, push that back on the application team, an application team at the node where the, the, you know, the request ends up, you do layer seven. Okay. And you know, this is one of these things where, again, application developers have a choice. Um, they probably don't want to be in that business because if they're Java developers and having to do HTTP search and all this is like, it's a lot yeah. of luck. But that's, you know, it goes back to that original, you know, service mesh trade-off. You can do as much as you want or as little as you want. Because we're talking about like true zero trust uh, security yep. only happens in layer seven. I mean, including layer four, but yeah, true zero trust 
will only happen if you manage to get control of the two layers, especially seven, right? Yeah. And so you and, trust and, nothing that is moved internally between services, whatever. Yeah. And, and for different companies, zero trust can mean different things, right? And this is, oh, okay. so one of the concepts in, in networking is this idea of what we call defense in depth. So, so if we took, but let's take your, your statement of like, Hey, true zero trust is at layer seven. So that probably means like, I, I don't want to trust the devices. I don't want to trust a user. I don't want to trust anything. Everything has to be, you know, sort of a certain level of identity and authentication. Yeah. Right. But, and, and, and that's perfectly valid, but that might be too complicated. It might be too expensive. It might be whatever. So what you do is you go, okay, what's an alternative to that? And so oftentimes what, what IT groups will do is they'll go, um, at a minimum, I want to make sure that I can validate every device that comes on the network, at least at layer four, so that you can't just get on the network and start doing it. And, you know, there's things like MTLS, which yeah. can do that really, really well. Um, you can identify devices. You can have, you know, single source of truth for how you authenticate things. Um, and that, for some companies that will tell you, like, look, we have hundreds or thousands of nodes, that's really important to us. And, like, that's good enough for some checkbox. That's, a, that's another level of defense in depth that we're happy to have. And then maybe we push the layer seven stuff to an application as opposed to the network. So, you know, there, there's not one answer to it. There, yeah. there's, there's multiple sort of valid answers. It really just depends on what you're trying to do. So, to your point of, of EBPF, the original question, and I'm kind of sorry for going long-winded. Um, so, EBPF is really interesting um, in various contexts. Um, it is, like, like we've said, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way of getting into the kernel of any given machine and doing some sort of lower-level inspection, translation that you could do before, and because it's in the kernel, like it should be relatively fast. That's the whole promise of it. The downside of it is, A, like you said, it's mostly written in C, although there's some things. We, we, Solo has a project called Bumblebee, which we try and make a little simpler, kind of the, the docker of EBPF, if you will. Oh, okay. Um, written in what? Um, there's some other languages okay. you can use to kind of get it in there or make them simpler. Okay. Um, it's an open source project. It's called Bumblebee. Um, but the other, you know, the other challenge of EBPF is, at the, at the sort of operations level, somebody who's in charge of that machine, that's, you know, the, the Linux admin, yeah. has to say, hey, Jordy, I'm cool with you going into the kernel of this machine, which in the past has been like, no, no, taboo, yeah. that ain't happening, yeah. right? Um, you know, so it's, it, it's, again, one of these sort of powerful yin and yangs of like, the technology can be really powerful, but can it, you know, can it actually be deployable? Is it scalable? Is it all these sort of things? Um, so we, we do some work from an EBPF perspective at really exploring, like, how can we make using EBPF simpler? And then when there's things that you can't do in your typical layer four or layer seven kind of environment or in, in the proxy layer, could you drop that down and do it in the kernel layer? Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, we look at it as not the core of our architecture. We look at it as it's an optional thing that you may want to use if your company allows you, if you're able to write those things. And um, so we're... You know, we're, we're very pro EBPF, but we also are kind of pragmatic about, you know, what its potential limitations are and where it can fit and where it overlaps with other stuff. I'd like to find the person that designed and committed and pushed uh, EBPF back in the day and named it. Yeah. And, you know, and tell... You well, know. it was, I mean, it, it originally was something called Berkeley Packet Filter. Exactly. Berkeley, Berkeley was the... the you didn't have anything of this in mind, I'm sure. Well... Or not. I, I mean, Berkeley Packet Filter goes back to like the original, original Linux days. It was like, 
um, you know, hey, I want to do packet filtering lower in the kernel. So it's been there for a while. It just, it was even harder to do. So extended pack, extended became, you know, like, hey, how do we make this simpler? Yeah. Right. Um, oh, okay. But the, the Berkeley part of it comes from, you know, the, the Berkeley distribution, which yes. came out of Cal Berkeley and all those sort of historical things. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of, it's a lot of consonants all jammed together that are sort of hard. To Would you reckon that the person designed it for, you know, for application monitoring and security monitoring of, yeah, of, well, of runtimes? Back in the day, like, you didn't have a concept of observability because <laughs> you didn't have microservices. So, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's the reason I would like to find that person. Yeah. Um, okay. So have I missed anything that Solo has announced uh, here? Did we not touch upon no, anything we, that you found we relevant? We covered a lot of things. And, yeah. and you know, having been on the show before, I know we don't ever want to turn these into commercials. So you okay. know, if anybody wants to reach out to me and talk about Exactly. SDO or those things. They're, they're more than happy to. I'm at B. Gracely on Twitter. You can find all of our stuff at solo.io, the website. Um, but yeah, we covered a lot of stuff. I, I, there was part of me that probably felt like, boy, I, if I was listening to this, I'd be like, I wish that guy had a whiteboard right now. I, you know, <laughs> yeah. Some of these things are a little bit complicated. But um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a powerful time right now because we, we have so much technology to do interesting things. And it's, it's really a matter of like, how do you harness them? And make them applicable. Um, and the, the use cases are, are pretty amazing for people. Like we, you know, we're seeing people do stuff. Unfortunately, or fortunately, because of COVID, like a lot of behaviors changed. Yeah. And so, you know, we're seeing people, you know, whether it's you know, customer interactions with mobile apps or the number of APIs that they processed or whatever. You know, it's some crazy things have happened out of the last two or three years, which is good. It proves all these technologies work. Um, but it's uh, you know, it's always just harnessing them because you know, there's so many options you have out there. Well, thanks for being with us, uh, Brian. Hopefully we can have you on the show next time. We've got a YouTube channel, so the option of doing a, not a whiteboard, but one of these, was it light boards? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, that, that, you give me an idea with that. Uh, we explore a new format. Who knows? There you go. Uh, thanks so much. You're welcome. Thanks, Charlie.